there has been a lot of news recently about the monarchy in Britain and members of the royal family, they are just airing their family drama. They are uh, talking to Oprah and thus to millions of people and uh, it is, it's just been on the news for weeks, but actually when you look at it, uh, their drama is pretty tame compared to the drama of some of the kings of the Old Testament. This morning, we are going to be looking at the monarchy in Israel, and some of the drama that we are going to be talking about includes soldiers having to stop a king from killing his own son, uh, God himself overthrowing a king's reign, his royal line, and saying, nope, I'm replacing you. Now, there is adultery, there is murder, there is scandal. It's all very dramatic. And it all leads up to the King of Kings himself, Jesus Christ. But before we get to Jesus, we're going to go all the way back to the first king of Israel. I want us to look at who the first king of Israel was. Now, some of you, I think, know your Bibles pretty well, and you are probably thinking, Saul. And I get that. I get that. After all, Saul was the first human king appointed by God, but Saul was not the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel was God himself. I know that's kind of like a trick question, right? But if you're thinking, well, God, I mean, he doesn't count. Guess what? You're not alone. Because the Jews, back in the time of the prophet Samuel, they were thinking the same thing. They were thinking, when it comes to a king, God, he, he doesn't count. God had led his people. He had commanded them. He had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. He appointed judges to lead and deliver them. And he had kept them from being burdened with having earthly kings and all the bad things that come with that. But the people of Israel wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to have a human earthly king. And so the elders of Israel went to the prophet Samuel and they said, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel prayed about it. He knew this isn't good. So he goes to talk to God about it. And listen to what God tells Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel 8, 7. It says, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God is saying, Samuel, this isn't against you. This is against me. They are rejecting me as their king. This is important because it shows that God's original plan for his people was not that they would have this long line of earthly kings. He wanted them to be set apart in a lot of different ways, from the laws that they kept to the food that they ate. Um, and one of the ways that he wanted Israel to be different from the other nations was he wanted them to live as a people that have no other king but God. God knew that when you start getting humans ruling over other humans, it ends badly because humanity has a sin problem. And so God tells Samuel, I want you to warn the people, hey, if you get a king, it's going to be bad for you. This is what's going to happen to your descendants. 
A king's going to take the best of your children and force them into labor. And he's going to take all the best of your fields. And uh, he's going to take your stuff. Ultimately, he's going to put them into slavery. And they're going to just cry out then. And God is warning them about all of this now. He is hoping that they will reconsider, but they don't. So the king drama, it's already started before the first human king of Israel was chosen. Because the drama in our story began with a rejecting of God as the rightful king of Israel. So Saul is chosen as the first human king of Israel. And he looks like he would be a great king. Like from the outside, you look at him, you go, hmm. Yeah, you look like you could lead. He is tall, strong, attractive. He's from a wealthy family. But as time goes on, we find out that Saul, he's missing the biggest attribute that a king of Israel needs. He isn't loyal to God. He doesn't have a heart for God. We see this in a few different things that Saul does. Number one, Saul did the exact thing that God said not to do. Um, in, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul led the Israelites in battle against the Philistines. Hop back one slide, please. And Saul and Israel, they're supposed to wait for Samuel the prophet to offer sacrifices to God and bless their efforts. But when that day comes for Samuel to come, Saul, he gets impatient. The day isn't over. Samuel still has time to come. But Saul goes, mm, my men are getting anxious, waiting for this battle to happen. I'll just go ahead and I will do it myself. I'll offer the sacrifice myself. And so he offers the sacrifice even though only the prophet is supposed to do that. Even though only Samuel is supposed to do that. God had specifically said for him not to do that. But he does. And as soon as he finishes offering that sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And he is like, Saul, what did you do? And Saul is basically like, well, you weren't here yet. My men were nervous. They wanted God's blessing, and so I did it myself. It's really ironic because Saul says, you know, I was trying to seek God's favor. And he does that by disobeying God's command. Another way that we see Saul not seeking God's favor is that he does not keep his vow to God. Now, this was a stupid vow that he never should have made in the first place. But you do not make a vow to God and then not keep it. It's like the old saying, hey, don't make promises you can't keep. That especially goes when you're talking to your creator and sustainer, God Almighty. You know, so what happened is Saul sees Philistine soldiers retreating. The Philistines are the Ill enemies of the Israelites. And he is like, oh, man. We got him. We can't let him escape. And so for no reason, maybe he gets too excited. I don't know. Maybe he just wants to sound tough. But for no really good reason, Saul the king makes this rash pledge. He says, I will kill any man who stops to eat food before we catch those Philistines. The problem was that Saul's son, Jonathan, He's already in hot pursuit of the Philistines. He doesn't hear this vow because he's pursuing them. And so he gets tired and he sees some wild honey. And so he dips his weapon in and 
get some wild honey, and he's like, yeah, just the energy boost I needed. He eats some. Jonathan actually ends up defeating the Philistines. But then Saul hears how he ate the honey, and he's like, oh, well, i got to kill my own son. And his soldiers stop him, as they should have. I mean, you talk about royal drama. Saul is about to execute his son, the prince of Israel, an innocent man and a battle hero, because Saul made a very foolish vow. So really, what's happening here is Saul is wrong on two counts. Because to do the right thing, not kill an innocent man, he has to do the wrong thing, which is break a vow to God. Had Saul actually been a man seeking God, he would have never made such a foolish vow in the first place. Lastly, we see Saul disobey God and lie about it. God gives him a victory over the Amalekites. But he tells them, I want you to eradicate every living thing among them. This is God's response, his judgment to the Amalekites for the way that they abused the Israelites on their way to the promised land. So he gives the Israelites victory, and Saul claims to have kept God's command. But while Samuel's talking to him, he hears the bleeding of Amalekite sheep. And he knows... Saul, you just lied to me. You said you took out everything, and now what, what's that bleeding I hear then? And then Saul starts lying more, and he says, well, you know, the men, they, they wanted to keep those uh, sheep to offer as a sacrifice to God. That's, that's why we kept those, as a sacrifice to God. And that's the last straw. God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my command. Out of all the things you could have said about you by God, you would hope that sentence never comes out of God's mouth about you. You have not been loyal to me, and you have refused to obey my command. Saul wasn't loyal to God. He didn't wait for God's timing. He led for people's approval instead of uh, for God's approval. And his heart was not pursuing God's will. And I start with all this about Saul because you need to understand Saul's failure so that we can appreciate David as his replacement. David had a heart for God. God chose David to be the future king when he was just a boy and the youngest of all his brothers. When God sent Samuel to David's father, Jesse, Samuel asked to see his sons. Jesse shows seven of his sons, all of them but David, actually. David was the youngest, and so uh, he was out just watching sheep. And Samuel starts looking at all of Jesse's sons, and he looks at the oldest one, uh, Eliab, and listen to what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:7. This is our core 52 memory verse for the week. It says, "Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." 
So, you know, you want to remember that. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay? David was just a small shepherd boy, and all his brothers were more impressive looking on the outside. But Jesse has to go get David after God said no to all the other more impressive looking sons because God is not concerned with the outward appearance. David had what God was looking for, a heart for God. God didn't choose David to be king because of his looks, his height, his great resume, his skills, his wealth. None of that. God chose David because when God looked at his heart, he saw a heart that wanted to love and honor God. Now later on in life, David does have the appearance and the resume and the skills and the wealth, but it is still his heart that God is concerned most with, not all that other stuff. And that's a lesson for us. That is what God is concerned most with for us. You know, not our looks, not our wealth or our resumes or our popularity. These are the things that we are often concerned most with, right? How we look, what our bank account says, what our job history says, how popular we are among the people. But, but God, he looks at the heart. That's what he's concerned most with. And that's what we need to be most concerned with, is having a heart that is devoted to God. And so the question is, how can we develop a heart for God? Like We know David had a heart for God. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, The Lord had sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, talking about David. So let's see what lessons we can learn from David to help us develop a heart for God. The first one, be humble in spite of success. In 1 Samuel 18, 4 through 7, we read how David is just hugely successful in military battles. This is before he's king. Saul is still king, and David has the people of Israel dancing and singing songs about him. They're singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. You start getting made songs about you, insinuating that you are ten times the warrior that the king is. That can make you cocky really quick. But David stays humble. He keeps serving Saul faithfully. He never tries to lead a coup or anything, even though he knows that God has already appointed him to be the next king. David knows the value of staying humble. He said to God in 2 Samuel 22:28, You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. So heart for God stays humble. And it gives God glory during success. We all have a lot of success. Don't let your success leads you away from God and start thinking, man, look at me. It's not about you. This is God that has blessed you, right? Another way for us to develop a heart for God is to stay mindful of the shepherd. David is known for lots of things, but one of the things he's most well known for is all of the Psalms that he wrote. One of the most popular one of those is Psalm 23. I remember being six years old. This is the first thing I memorized. I had a, a teacher that was like, memorize Psalm 23 and I will give you a Bible. So I memorized it. 
Um, it starts, the Lord is my shepherd. And David is a shepherd himself. So it makes sense, it's only natural for him to start viewing God as a shepherd over all his people. David dwelt on God. Like his mind was just thinking on God, focusing on the good shepherd. And that's what we need to do. And, and what you need to understand when it comes to focusing on the shepherd is this is not a one-time process. Like what I'm not saying is we need to focus on the shepherd every Sunday. No, it's, it's a lifestyle, right? This is a thing where we understand that it's not just I focused on God this week, I'm done, but it's we understand that the world is full of things that want to draw us away from focusing on the shepherd. They want to draw us uh, to a bunch of lesser distractions, to a bunch of more trivial pursuits. And we need to refocus on pursuing God, on the pursuit of God. We need to be in the habit of stopping to refocus during the day, refocus our attitudes, refocus our speech, refocus our actions by refocusing on God, by refocusing on Jesus, the Good Shepherd. We also need to be available for service. Acts 13.22 says, God said of David, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will carry out all my will. I said before, man, that's something you wouldn't want God to say about you. You know, we were talking about Saul and said, oh yeah, you wouldn't want God to say, they haven't been loyal to me and they haven't obeyed my commands. But here, this is something you would want God to say about you. This is a person after my heart who carries out my will. When we have a heart for God, we're going to carry out his will. Let's be real. We all struggle with laziness sometimes. And the antidote for laziness is service. If you ever find yourself saying, I'm bored, go serve God by serving others. I had a shirt made for kids when I was working at camp years ago. It says, it's tough to be bored when you're serving the Lord. This is very true. When you have a heart for God, you are going to stay busy serving Him. The question for you is, have you made yourselves available for service? God gives us ability, right? It's uh, You can learn how to do things. There's plenty of ways to plug you in. We each have our own gifts. God gives us ability, but we need to give availability. So have you made yourselves available for service? Listen to what Acts 13.36 says about David at the end of his time on earth. It says, for David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep. May that also be said of us too. Before we fall asleep, before we die here, may it be said of us, 
Yep. They served in God's plan. Finally, if you want to develop a heart for God, we need to be repentant of sins. If you know David's story, you know it is far from perfect. Uh, maybe the worst stuff that happens, more drama coming up here. He lusts after Bathsheba, and he committed adultery with her, and then he found out he got her pregnant, and so he tried to call her husband Uriah home from the battlefield so he could sleep with his wife and cover it up and be like, no, the baby's his, but Uriah is trying to be too good a guy, and he won't go sleep with his wife because he's like, man, the other soldiers, they don't get to be home. I, I shouldn't do that. No. So David goes, okay, I'll just have him killed. And he basically writes a letter to the general saying, I want you to put him where the, the fighting's just the most fierce and then pull everybody else back. We'll see what happens. You know? And uh, he basically has him murdered. Crazy royal drama. David is called out for this. And what I want you to see here is that David failed. He failed on multiple levels. And this is not the only time in his life that he failed. He took a census one time that he shouldn't have, and God was annoyed with that too. But David failed on multiple levels. But here, here is where he differed from Saul when Saul failed. David repented of his sins before God, and he sought God's favor again. He confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. This is 2 Samuel 12, 13. If you read Psalm 51, it's his confessional statement. And he begs God, and I have these verses memorized. They're a good prayer. Whenever you mess up, he's like, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, from David's life, we see that we don't have to be perfect to have a heart for God. You can have some pretty bad mistakes. You can have a shady past. You can mess up and you can still have a heart for God. And you can still be used in a mighty way just like David was for God's will. It's sad that we are going to sin, but that's just the truth of the matter. And we know what sin does, that it stains, that it hardens our heart. But we also know that the great antidote to that is repentance. When we repent from our sins, which means when we ask forgiveness and when we turn away from the sin, from the wickedness, God is faithful and he will forgive us and he will restore us. And so we can... It's not like, oh man, I have to be flawless and once I mess up, I don't have a heart for God anymore. It is, we can learn from David, I messed up. God, please renew your spirit within me. Please you know, cast away my mess up there. Cast away my sin and, and just uh, forgive me. And then we move away from that sin and God continues to use us. And he continues to say, that is my child. That is a person after my own heart. All right, so we can learn from David's life that even when we're not faithful, God is faithful. He will forgive us. He will restore us. 
King David, he had a heart for God, but he didn't always lead with God's heart. And so to find a leader that did always lead with God's heart, uh, you got to go on past every other king in the Old Testament. You got to look to when uh, the kingdom of Israel is, is no more. And Rome's in charge. You have to look to Jesus. Jesus comes and he is checking all of the boxes for the promised Christ, for the Messiah. Right at his birth, he starts checking them. After all, Jesus was born the king of the Jews. We remember the Magi following the star to Jesus and they go to Herod and they're asking, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. Jesus is born being recognized as king of the Jews. And then, much later in life, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. He was asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, it is as you say. So Jesus is recognized from birth as king of the Jews. He recognizes himself as king of the Jews. He spoke of himself as having a kingdom. Jesus claimed this kingdom. He would also speak of, often speak of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. These earlier flawed kings of Israel that we were looking at, Saul, David, what they do is they help us to look forward to, they help us to anticipate the sinless king, Jesus Christ. Here's the only thing about King Jesus. Jesus never sat on the throne as king during his time here on earth. He was recognized as a king since birth, affirmed he was king on our trial, so why not take the throne? I want you to understand he could have had the throne if he wanted it. Jesus could have taken an earthly throne. Rome is in power when he came to earth, but he could have easily led an uprising against them. And he had the power to win. I mean, think about Jesus. Like He could see the future. He could raise the dead. He could multiply food and supplies. He could control the weather. He can call legions of angel warriors. Jesus has God powers. There is no army stopping him from taking a throne if he wants one. Jesus also had an oppressed people, the Jews. They are tired of Roman rule. They are anxious to follow him. They are ready to lead an uprising and follow him as king. In fact, John 6.15 tells us at least one time the crowds actually tried to make Jesus by force. It says Jesus had to slip away from them. Jesus chose not to sit on an earthly throne while he was here on earth, even though he was king of the Jews. Why? Two big reasons. One, great as being an earthly king is, Jesus knew that his purpose for coming to earth is much greater. The Jews, you think about it, they're looking for a Messiah to be an earthly king, to lead them to rise up against Rome and restore their nation. But Jesus did not just come for one particular group of people. And he did not just come for people in this one particular point in time. And he did not just come to go against a political oppressor. 
Jesus, again, came for a much greater thing. Jesus came to deliver all of the world who would put their faith in him for all time from a much greater oppressor, which is the spiritual enslaver of sin that we were helpless against. We all know John 3.16. That's what it's talking about there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This verse shows Jesus' greater purpose. He's here for the whole world so that we could have eternal life instead of perishing. So Jesus' greater purpose, it prevented him from taking an earthly throne. And I think a second reason that Jesus didn't reestablish the monarchy and take an earthly throne is because he knew that only God as king is needed. Remember at the beginning, we noted God was the first king of Israel, right? Israel rejected him when they cried out for a human king. So Jesus is not going to reestablish an Israel monarchy. Sure, he's God, but then, you know, when he goes, the next guy is not going to be God. And, and that was against God's design the first time. So instead, what Jesus does is he spends his time teaching, pointing people back to their Father in heaven, helping them turn their focus off of a political kingdom and onto the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That being said, had Jesus been king, he would have been different from every other king of Israel and every other country, just by nature of who he was. One way that his reign would have looked different than every other person's reign is that Jesus would have promoted the exclusive rule of Yahweh. Uh, in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel introduces Israel to their new king, Saul. He says, here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord set a king over you. If you fear the Lord, serve and obey him. Do not rebel against his commands. If both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now we know Saul did not lead the people to fear and honor the Lord well. But Jesus would have done that flawlessly. We know he lives by the most important commandment being love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus also would have promoted following the Torah, you know, God's law. After all, Jesus kept the law flawlessly. He was sinless. Unlike Saul and David and every other Israel king, he would not have stumbled in sin. Jesus also would have used his power selflessly. A lot of times when people get power, the power corrupts them, right? You know, that's what they say, absolute power corrupts. But Jesus, he wouldn't have used the monarchy to get rich or pursue women or pursue the land he wanted or anything like that. See, the thing is, Jesus already had more power when he was here on earth than any other earthly king. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted. He is God in flesh. Like, Jesus could have looked really different if he had had a different attitude. He could have been just striking down everyone that disagreed with him. Like, that'll teach you. You know, he could have been seeking the finest pleasures in life and getting them. Living the easy life, living the selfish life, but he didn't. 
He used his power selflessly to help others, to feed, to heal, to restore. Jesus already had power, and he used it selflessly. And so what we saw in his ministry would have been what we saw in his monarchy. But even without taking an earthly throne, 2,000 years ago, Jesus still king of the Jews. And he is still king today. He is God. He is part of the Trinity. He is seated on the throne next to God the Father. And when Jesus returns, he will be proclaimed king of kings. Revelation 19 talks about how that is going to be just tattooed on his thigh. King of kings when he returns. He is king over all the other kings and all the other kingdoms of the world. And when Jesus returns and there is this new heaven and this new earth in Revelation 21, it's talking about Jesus sitting on the throne on the new earth as king. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He goes on to say, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. In verse 6 he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is king forever. And in the new earth, he will dwell with his people and he will reign forever. As we come to our invitation time, we know that Jesus is a king above all other kings in history. He is king now and forever. And we know that just like when God chose David as king, we know that God is interested most in our hearts. God wants us to develop our hearts for him. As I sing, he wants our hearts to look like his heart. That should be our goal. Our goal is for our heart to look like God's heart. We want to be a people after God's own heart. And that's only fully possible through putting your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, being made supernaturally pure, being made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you want a heart that is not enslaved to sin, but a heart that is uh, following the rightful King of all kings, the Creator, the Sustainer, Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and talk to me. We're going to stand and we're going to sing The King is Coming. And we look forward to that day.